This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those who I carry, says <laughs> to all those I carried into ex exile from Jeremiah to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too might have sons and daughters. Yay for marriage. Uh, increase in number there and do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have, given, I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captiv captivity. I will gather you from all nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So uh, we're looking at the book of Jeremiah today because Jeremiah's times are a lot like ours. The great Babylonian empire has come in and just destroyed Israel and carried the best that Israel has to offer off back to Babylon in captivity. And in Babylon, they found this huge, hostile, brutal city that was fragmented. It's filled with all these different people from all these different groups with different visions of nature, morality, and how the world works and what the purpose of the world is. So the question today I'd like to start off with and have you think about is, how do you respond to a fragmented culture? You know, it's, it's election season. Um, in fact, next week we're going to do a real faux pas. We're going to preach on religion and politics. So two of your favorite topics, prepare for fireworks. It's going to be amazing. But this, this, you know, election cycle, as you look at your Facebook feed or as you check out the different um, news outlets, you see liberals who are like just choking on all the conservative fodder that's out there. And you can see conservatives freaking out and saying liberals are taking over the country. Now, how can, how can it be both? It's because we live in a fragmented society. We live in a society that has so many different groups and, and everybody feels like an exile in their own land. There's no real consensus about what's right, what's wrong. And this is very much like the society that the Jewish um, exiles, the captives, were led away into. So here's the question. How do we respond to that kind of society? How do we deal with a culture that's growing increasingly hostile to the things of God. God's answer to the exiles is astounding. I'm excited to jump into it. We're going to talk about three things, the wrong ways to respond, 
God's way to respond and how to get the power to do it. So I'm excited about that. Let's dive right in. Point number one, the wrong ways to respond to culture. This will be a bit of a recap from the first sermon, but there's three wrong ways to respond to the surrounding culture. The first one is domination. Try to take it over, try to rule over it. The problem is the Israelites don't have that as an option because they've been dominated. So that ship has sailed. So there's two options that they have left. The first one is the one that the Babylonians are pushing on them. You got to understand the Babylonians were the world empire. They'd taken everything over. They knew how to deal with captives. And so what they would do, they, they had different approaches to people they'd conquered. One was to expel them, kick them out, right? But then they come back madder than before. The other one is to subjugate them, turn them into slaves, make them work for you. But then you have uprisings. So the Babylonians got really smart. And they did this third option called assimilation. They said, hey, look, we're going to give you the best jobs. We're going to give you the best food, the best clothes. Here's the deal. You just got to start to live like us. You got to hang out with us in our culture and do things how we do them. It's seductive, isn't it? It's like, ooh, I could drive a Porsche. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I, I, will, I will say whatever you need me to say. I'll do whatever you need me to do. And that's what they did as a culture. In fact, you see people like Daniel, whose name was changed to Belteshazzar, right? So the, the Babylonian god Baal is actually in Daniel's name. It means my God is Baal. They changed his name. This prophet of Jehovah, they changed his name to my God is Baal. Think about that. So when we assimilate people culturally, right? This is what the Babylonians are thinking. We, we're going to assimilate them culturally, intellectually, socially, spiritually. And then within a couple generations, their people group is gone. Their distinctiveness have kind of worn away. We have, a, we have a term for that in psychology. It's called Stockholm Syndrome. Have you guys heard of that? Somebody gets led away captive. They get captured and they start to identify with their captor. They start to stop, they stop seeing them as an enemy and start to see them as a friend or even fall in love with them. And that's what they were banking on. You lose who you are. You decrease in your individuality. You decrease in the number of those representing your culture. And that's why in verse six of this passage, God says, hey, when you go there, increase. Don't decrease. God says, don't be seduced by their culture. Don't collude with your captors. In fact, I want you to increase. So that's the other wrong way. There's domination, there's assimilation, and there's fortification, which is what the Jewish prophets, the false Jewish prophets are telling the people of Israel. And that's why God writes this letter through Jeremiah to the people of Israel. Okay, the false prophets, what they're saying is basically, if you read the previous chapter, these false prophets, the Jewish people are hanging out on the Kabar Canal, and they've got prophets like Hananiah that are saying, hey guys, look, don't go into the city. The city's bad. It's polluted. It's dirty. God's going to judge the city. God's going to destroy it. And God's going to restore Israel and give us our city back in just a couple of years. So don't even go in. Don't have commerce with the city. Don't hang out there. Don't get polluted because they're trying to protect against assimilation. But their answer to it is totally pull back and have nothing to do with them. And God says, no, don't do that. What does he say to his prophet? He says, those people are not my prophets. You go into the city. You live. You seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I sent you. So there's three options, domination, assimilation, and fortification. 
domination's out, and the only two left are assimilation and fortification. Assimilation means I go into the city and I engage it for my own individual power and wealth. I use the city for what I can get. And fortification means that I smile at the city on the outside, but inside, I'm scheming, I disdain it, I exploit it for my group, for my tribe, for my collective. And God says, no, don't use the city for what you can get, but be there for what you can give. I've sent you here, he says. I have plans to prosper you, to protect you. I, I, want, I want to ask you a question. If fear wasn't even in the equation for you, how would you be free to live? How would you be free to engage culture? Not through fortifying or dominating or assimilating, but this, this fourth way that we see in the life of Christ, God's way, and this is point number two, incarnation. Incarnation is what God calls us to. The context, it, it, I love this passage. Um, you know, you see it on our Christian mugs and our Christian t-shirts. Jeremiah 29, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you. You guys see that? I love that verse. It's a great verse. The problem is we can take only half of it and read it out of context, right? So what's the context that Jesus, or that God is saying to the children of Israel in this passage. He's saying that I'm going to send you into incarnational ministry and mission in a hostile culture. So I'm going to give you, I have plans to prosper you for the mission I've sent you on. And I think if we're not careful, we just take half of it and then we end up with some prosperity gospel stuff. And all, God is all about blessing me and my plans in my life. And God says, no, I have plans for you. Plans to prosper you. The plans to prosper you, it's like in that same passage, he says, I have plans to prosper you and I sent you into exile. You see the tension there? Like a lot of us, we want the prospering and not the exile. Right? We want the blessing, but not the burden of the mission of God. We want to get all this stuff from God, but we don't necessarily want to give to the world that he's called us to. You know, the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis, one of the most profound passages of scripture where God calls Abraham and he says, what? I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. So that, what? You can be a blessing so that all the nations of the earth can be blessed through you. So God is giving his blessings to his people for his mission. And if we take that verse out of context, what we end up with is a very self-centered, individualistic, consumeristic mentality where God is a magical genie that just wants to bless me and my plans. And we put ourselves in the center of our life. And we miss out on the good news of God's mission for us. Because I'm just gonna say this. Uh, God's plans for you are better than yours. God knows more about what you need than you do, right? And I could go into example after example, but I'm already way off topic because it's not the central point here. This is a nugget. But I look at Gavin, named Gavin. If, if Gavin got what he wanted all the time, my four-year-old son, he would live on candy and he would never eat anything green unless it was a Jolly Rancher, right? <laughs> I know the plans that I have for you, Gavin. Plans to prosper you but I've sent you into exile, into soup plantation to get some salad because you need something. You're just going to kill over, man. 
So God says, I want you to live incarnationally. What's that look like? He gives us some handles. I love these four things I see in this passage that I want to point out really quick in point number two. He says, first of all, settle in. Move in, buy homes, raise kids, plant gardens. Be present in the city where I sent you. And it's funny because in verse number one, it says Nebuchadnezzar led them into captivity. And then verse number four says what? I led you into captivity. Verse seven, God says, I sent you into exile. So wait, which is it? Nebuchadnezzar or God? (laughs) Yeah, God uses the social forces around us to place us into his plan for us. Paul says it in his sermon in Acts 17 on Mars Hill. He says that God, um, do I have the scripture actually? Acts 17, let me look here. I I just don't want to misquote it. That God basically allotted and predestined the times and the places where people would live. I want you to ask yourself a question briefly. Could it be that God sent you to San Diego for his mission? And maybe, I mean, maybe it was a girl or a guy that got you to move here. Maybe it was education. Maybe it was a job. But could it be that God, just like he used Nebuchadnezzar of old, was using social forces in your life to bring you to a place where he wanted to bless you for his mission and bless the city through you? Be fully present. And I know that's hard because like, when I think about being fully present, I think about the fact that every time I talk to somebody now, while I'm talking to them, they go, uh-huh. You guys ever see that? And they got the phone out and they got the social media. How hard is it to be present anymore? We're always thinking about what's next. We're going, going, going. And, and I think there's a mentality that is even kind of in my generation and our generation, this like wanderlust, this I want to conquer the world. I want to travel and see great things. And what we can miss out on is the rootedness and the plans that God may have for us. What if God's called you to give your life for a city? Does that cramp your style too much? What if? I'm just throwing it out there, okay? So number one, build homes, move in, plant gardens. What does it look like for us to be fully present in San Diego? Number two, he says, increase, decrease. Don't decrease, but increase. Let me ask you, do you think that the gospel is growing in cities or shrinking? I just want you to think about that. You know, Harvard released a recent review that 500,000 people every month are moving from rural areas into cities worldwide. That's the size of Rio de Janeiro. That many people, a new Rio essentially propping up in the cities around the world every month. Many churches are not ready for that. Let me ask you this. Think about this. San Diego right now, we're 1.3 million In the next 10 years, by 2026, we're supposed to be at 1.6 million. That's an increase of 300,000 people. Let's give some perspective on that. That's the size of St. Louis, the whole city. That's the size of St. Paul. In the next 10 years, this city's gonna grow that much. How many churches do you think are in St. Louis? Do you think that we're gonna grow a lot, right? Do you think we're gonna grow by that many churches in the next 10 years? Think about it. Is our gospel presence growing or shrinking? 
I'm be honest with you, I don't. And I'm not being negative when I say that. I'm just staring at the cold hard facts with a relentless hope for the future. Right now, statistics are saying that many churches are declining and dying. Statistics tell us that in the next 15 years, one third of the churches in the U.S. are going to die. And why is that? It's because nobody knows how to be missionaries anymore. We love to go and shout on Sunday and experience kind of a culture, if we're not careful, of consumerism. And I'm sorry if I'm stepping on toes here. I just want to be real. We can create a culture of consumerism where we go and we enjoy events. And then the problem is, uh, it's, it's Stockholm Syndrome. It's the individualism of our culture, the consumerism and the materialism of our culture that's gotten into our daily lives. We don't even realize we're colluding with our captors and church begins to mirror concerts and things like that. And I'm all for concerts. I'm just saying, we need a lot more than that. Because when the Babylonians come in, us just being trained to be good and attend an event isn't going to hold our identity in place. Yeah? All right. So, whew, we want to see the gospel take root and bear fruit in San Diego. And I just want to say this, too. Um, that's why everything that we're doing here at New City is geared toward training and making disciples who are missionaries. Everything from our kids. Right now, we got kids in another room, and they are being trained in the gospel to learn who they are in Christ, even at a young age. It, we're not just turning on VeggieTales for them. We've got some of the best teachers I've ever seen loving our kids and serving them. Nothing wrong with VeggieTales. I'm just saying <laughs> we're also discipling them. I don't want to step on the VeggieTales fans' toes. <laughs> but our Sunday gatherings are geared toward modeling worship and belief in the gospel and repentance. CBR, when you're, when you're reading city Bible reading, it's geared toward helping you contextualize the truth of the scripture for your daily life and for the things you're facing. Gospel communities on mission are all geared to train you to be a missionary in a family out there among the people who need it most. DNA groups, which we're getting ready, I'm stoked, we've got some stuff lined up in the next six months or so, are being geared to train newer believers in the basics of the faith and teach them what it looks like to live on mission and how to walk with God. And then we've got huddles going for, for our leaders to train them to be not only missional community leaders, but to be church planners. We want to see pastors and missional communities plant all over this city and just see the gospel take root and begin to bear fruit throughout San Diego. We have to be a multiplying church. We have to train ourselves and learn and create space in our life to be missionaries. We want to train and release new leaders and pastors to plant gospel works. We want to honor God and increase. Thirdly, so he says, settle in. He says, increase. Thirdly, he says, pray to the Lord for it. Now, I think if you're a believer in here, most of us could agree prayer is pretty important, right? I mean, if you don't, let's chat later. But what, what would it look like for us to pray for our city? It's like, God bless San Diego. <laughs> Just move on. Is that, is that the extent of our prayer for the city? So some questions to think through. I, I just want to like just process this with me briefly. What are some different areas of your city? 
um, whether that's the educational area or where commerce happens or the government, the arts, charity? Are we praying for different aspects of our city's life? Or what about different places that you interact with, your, your neighborhood, your local coffee shop, the places where you chill, your job? Are, are you praying for the people you interact with, the local barista, waiter, bartender? Are you praying for your neighbors? Are you praying for the people you work with and go to school with? Are you praying for your city? And, and are you listening, too? Are you listening? Holy Spirit, what's next? Who do you want me to reach out to today? Who do you want me to call some family from my gospel community on mission toward? Who are people of peace you've sent in my pathway? Just a brief note that, guys, there are real powerful forces that oppose the work of God. And if we're not praying for our city, if God's not doing the work, the Bible says, unless the watcher watches the wall, right? Unless God watches the wall, the watcher watches in vain. Unless God builds the house, we labor in vain. Like if we're not pulling God into this work, if we're not depending on him, what are we doing? We can paint some walls and pick up some trash and feed some hungry people and preach against systemic racism on a Sunday and then walk away and say, yeah, we're being a city within the city. No, we're not. Not without God at work sustaining and empowering this. We need to pray for our city. Fourthly, settle in, increase, pray, and seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've sent you. It says, seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon, the city that's hands are still wet and dripping with the blood of their fellow countrymen. Babylon just killed my cousin, and God wants me to pray for them? The city... Can you imagine? It must have been mind-blowing for God's family to hear that he wanted them not to just engage the city as a tribe, but he wanted them to seek the shalom of the whole city and pray for it. And that only makes sense if you put it in the context of the whole of Scripture. When you think about how God, what God has to say about cities throughout Scripture, and uh, a great kind of cliff note version of this, although it's a really thick book, if you anybody heard of Augustine? famous church father, confessions, and he wrote a, I like, I think it's his magnum opus, uh, The City of God. And in The City of God, Augustine essentially says that the whole Bible is basically a tale of two cities. The city of man and the city of God. Oftentimes called Jerusalem and Babylon. Right? And like, you can see this, Isaiah 26, Psalm 122, contrast. And the city of man is, it's based on pride. You move into the city to make a name for yourself, to, to, to get a self, to find your identity, power, achievement. Then I'll know I'm somebody. That's the basis for the city of man. It's pride, right? That makes it a place of exhaustion. People go into the city needing to get, to get love, to get power, a recognition, a resume, a name, whatever, you know? Like the poet Rihanna said. Work, 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 work. <laughs> and that exhaustion, it makes it a place of oppression too, right? Oppression, we're working so hard to get up the ladder that we're willing to step on people. It becomes a dog-eat-dog -dog city. I remember when I was a kid, we used to play King of the Hill. Anybody play that? It's a great game because all you need is a pile of dirt and more than one kid. And 
it's on, right? And you fight and you push and you kick and you scratch and claw to get up on top of the hill. And then once you're on top, what do you do? You fight and you kick and you scratch and you claw and you push people down because you want to be on top. That's a picture of our economy. That's a picture of our politics. That's a picture of our culture. The city of man. But the city of God is not based on pride. It's based on peace. It's not based on human effort and work, work, work. It's based on the work of God, grace on our behalf. And so that makes the city of God not a place of exhaustion because people, they're looking to give, not to get. I've already received my identity from grace. I've already received every good gift, everything I need. I know I've got a father who's a provider. I know I've got a father who's in control. So now I can come into the city of man, not to get, but to give. I'm not looking for identity. I already have that. Now I'm here and I can love people as they are. I can bring the, sh- the peace and shalom of God into the city. So that makes it a place not of oppression, but of justice. Here's another way of saying it. City of man is your life to benefit me. City of God is my life to benefit you. I come to give. I know who I am. So we live in the city of man right now, right? I mean, we feel exhausted. Tomorrow's Monday. We know what that means, right? Like, like Josh talked about last week. And we feel the oppression. How do we respond to this brokenness? God says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. You know, hundreds of years later, Jesus says almost the exact same thing in Matthew 5, a passage we looked at for the last three weeks. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And then he says what? A city that is set on the hill cannot be hid. So Jesus is essentially saying the same thing that Jeremiah is saying that's said over and over is that every city has two cities. Every city. The city of God is a miniature city inside the city of man. They're an alternate city and in the city that operates on different values. Why? Well, think about it. In Western culture, our values, we, we value individualism. So it's all about my needs. In non-Western culture, we, we value the needs of the group, of the tribe, right? Of the collective, individualism collective. But in the city of God, we value their needs. We care about each other's needs. That's totally different. It's me for you, not you for me. So that means that the way we use money, sex, and power is completely different. Let's talk about that real quick. You ready? All right. Sex. In this world, sex is all about what fulfills me, right? What makes who happy? Me. In God's kingdom, sex is all about giving yourself away. It's not me first, it's you first. I give myself away to you. That's why in God's kingdom, you don't have sex unless you can give yourself away fully. You're willing to lose your independence unselfishly. So you're willing to commit, you marry somebody, right? If you're not willing to marry, it's basically because it's all about you. You're not willing to give yourself away. You just want what you can get. Or money. Let's talk about money. In God's kingdom, the money's not yours. In the world's kingdom, it's like, yeah, I guess I should give some of my money away. I'll I'll help somebody. But the money is mine. I earned it. 
But God says to his children in Deuteronomy, he says, hey, you guys aren't going to be like that. It's me. I give you the power to even earn the wealth that you have. It's all from me, right? So in God's economy, none of it's yours. It's all of grace. Everything's a gift. Power in the world's kingdom, we use power to get more for me, more for us. In God's kingdom, we use power to give, to love. So that's why in the kingdom of God, sex, money, power are so different. We, we take sex, money, and power, and instead of using them for exploitation and pride and getting, we use them in life-giving ways. So the way you bear witness to the city of God in the city of man is that you, you don't go in there to work for your sake and what you get, assimilation, right? And you don't go in there to work for your collective tribe's sake, which is fortification. And you don't go in there to try to take over and dominate You work in the city for the city's sake. You live as a new city within the surrounding city of man. St. Augustine says this in the book City of God. He says, the moment you're born again, you get dual citizenship in these two cities. You're not just a citizen of one and not the other. You have dual citizenship. And the citizens of the city of God are the best citizens in the city of man. They don't make, uh, move in to like make a name for themselves, make themselves or their group stronger. They move in for the city's sake, right? That's what Jeremiah is saying. He's saying, seek the peace and prosperity of the city into which I sent you. So when Jeremiah talks about shalom, it's worth thinking about for a second because there's not really an English word that translates well for shalom. We say peace, but it falls really short, right? This idea of shalom is the Hebrew idea of the way the world was meant to be before sin, before the fall. Shalom means total flourishing in every dimension. So I want to ask you a question. I want to dialogue about this. So I'd love for you guys to jump in here for a second. What would it look like to have total flourishing in every dimension of our city? I'm going to throw one out here. What would it look like to have total flourishing economically in San Diego? There would, yeah, we'd be rich. There'd be enough for everybody, wouldn't there? Would anybody be going without in a city that's economically flourishing? No. Any other thoughts on that one? Yeah, the homeless crisis would be handled differently. There wouldn't be a homeless crisis. There would be family that are taken care of. Yeah, sense of community. Yeah, what else? We wouldn't have some economies or, or businesses even, right? Certain businesses that it's all about just the bottom line, but they don't have other bottom lines that factor into the equation like the environment or human health or, or social aspects, right? Yeah, good. How about this? Um, what would it look like to have total flourishing socially in San Diego in our social space with one another? You're just scratching your back. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah, you'd be comfortable in your own skin. Amen. Yeah, well, oh man, I would love that. I would love one full day of that in my own. No fear. No fear socially. I mean, I mean let's start with, you wouldn't have to have locks on your doors, would you? You wouldn't be afraid of somebody coming in to take. Because people wouldn't do that. They would care for one another before themselves. 
Yeah, what else? Yeah. No racism. Yeah. Either, either the overt kind, right, where somebody's just blatantly racist, or the covert kind, the systemic kind, where people are just part of a system and willingly ignorant and don't care that there's systemic racism that's affecting people around them. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, so kids would be able to fellowship with kids of all kinds, right? It wouldn't just be the, the people that are like my brand are cool, regardless of whether that's race or whether it's any other thing, socioeconomic, age, lifestyle, choices, background, whatever, right? We would all be open to one another. Throw one more out. Um, how about spiritually? What would total flourishing in every dimension look like spiritually in San Diego? That's a big one. Yeah. Uh, creating a comfortable space people can doubt and have spiritual conversations and questions um, <laughs> and be welcomed into those, be, be welcomed into communities and stuff. Yeah. Creating space for people to actually have spiritual questions. Yeah. They're struggling. Isn't it weird how we demonize people that are different from us because we're afraid of their questions and create that space where people can actually explore their faith, their doubts? Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Everybody would know God. That's what it was like in the garden, wasn't it? God walking with them in the cool of the day. Don't have to go through an institution or a person to try to connect with God. You've got him right there. You know, that day's coming, by the way. Yeah. Mike. Spiritual Starbucks? <laughs> I love it. On every corner. Mike. Mm. Everything would be done for the right reasons. Wow. Yeah, because you can do all this stuff that looks right on the outside and have all the wrong motivation on the inside, right? Yeah. Yeah, oh, I feed the poor. This is what Jesus is wrestling with with the Pharisees of his day, right? They're really living up to the letter of the law in so many ways, but their heart is far from him, right? Yeah, so heart check. I want to know, how, how do you know if you love this city? How do you know? I'm going to share this story with you. Rodney Stark is um, a historian, and he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, and he describes... Uh, early centuries of Christianity and the plagues that occurred in many cities. And this is dark, but can you try to imagine this as I, as I read this paragraph? As the plagues came into large cities. The doctors were quite incapable of treating the disease that swept through. People became afraid to visit anyone. And as a result, thousands of people died with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants perished through lack of any attention. The bodies of the dying were heaped on top of one another, and the half-dead creatures could be seen staggering about in the streets. The catastrophe was so overwhelming that people became indifferent to every rule of morality. Many pushed sufferers away, even their own dearest, often throwing them into the roads before they were dead, hoping to advert contagion. I mean, if you live in that city in a time like that, how do you respond? If you're there for assimilation, I'll tell you what you do. You get the heck out. I don't want to assimilate that, right? 
And if you're there for fortification, you stay out. I have nothing to do with you. I'm better. But if you're a city within a city, this is what you do. This is, listen to what the Christians did. Most Christians, however, showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And many departed their life serenely happy, for they were affected by their neighbors and they cheerfully accepted their pains. They lost their lives in this matter and many elders and ministers did as well. So Stark is, he's trying to figure out like, how do we account for the crazy rise of Christianity, this tiny little religious sect that took over an empire? And he says at the end of this chapter, I love this. He, he says this, and I put this quote up here so you can read it with me. And I, I love it because he's, you know, he's a, he's a teacher. <laughs> he's a professor. So he writes this kind of coyly, but he says this. Uh, the consequences of all this is that the pagan survivors faced greatly increased odds of conversion after they recovered because of their greatly increased attachment to Christians. You know what he's saying? He's saying that Christianity exploded because people, Christians like you and I, live like this. When there were dying pagans around them, they entered in, they didn't run away. And then here's the thing, when the pagans recovered, they're like, why are you here? You're not getting any money for this? You're, where are you getting from this? And the Christians are like, yeah, we're not getting any money. We have everything we need. We're not getting a sense of identity. We already have that. We don't need a name for ourselves. We, we don't need anything. We don't even need to live. <laughs> the Christians said, we're not here for that. And as a result, the Christian gospel captured the imaginations of people. Christianity did not capture their imaginations by trying to take over or get people into office. They got power by not trying to get power. They participated and gave themselves up for the city's sake. And the last question then that brings us to a real crisis, I think, for most of us, how do we get the power to do that? All this stuff, this is great. This is beautiful. It's ideals. It's floating around out there. But how can I do that tomorrow? Where's the power come from? I'm closing briefly with this. They looked to Jesus. God doesn't tell us to do anything. He's not willing to do himself. So when we think about those things, whether it's settling in, increasing, praying, seeking the shalom, I just want to share with you how we see this in Jesus' life. Jesus settled in. He left heaven, the expanse of heaven, and be, subjected himself to the closed confines of humanity. He left the comfort of heaven and all the posh reality, the shalom, and entered into our mess and our chaos and our brokenness. Jesus settled in and he increased. Jesus didn't just come as a lone ranger. What's he start doing immediately? He calls people into his kingdom. He tells them that they're citizens of another city, right? The city of God. He's a missionary. He's making disciples who make disciples. He gave all of his time, all of his energy, his finances, his intellect, his effort to pour into people. And you see his passion because he prayed. You guys remember that passage? It's hard for me not to cry every time I read it and I see Jesus' passion for cities. 
Like when he's praying over Jerusalem in Matthew 23 and he says, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those I sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. And he cries out over Chorazin and, and Bethsaida and he cries out over cities. He's broken under the burden he carries. And he sought the shalom of cities. He lived as an ambassador from another city who came and showed the world what that city was like. And we say it all the time here. He came showing them that kingdom. He said, in that kingdom, there's no sickness. So he healed them. In that kingdom, there's no hunger. So he fed the multitudes. In that kingdom, there's no deception. There's no falsehood. So he taught them truth and he freed their minds from the captivity they were under. He said, in that, in that kingdom, there's no death. And he raised them back to life. Jesus came representing the kingdom. He incarnated the city of God. He didn't come saying, your life to benefit me. Jesus came saying, my life to benefit you. At the end of his ministry, Jesus entered into Jerusalem, this, always known as the city of God. And what happens? They executed him. And they threw him out of the city. Why'd they throw him out? Why didn't they crucify him in the city? Why'd they take him out? Well, you never executed somebody inside the holy city because it was necessary to send them out to die because being cast out was symbolic for the consequence of sin. You lose community. You lose your rights. You lose your blessing. You're you're thrown out. But for Jesus, it wasn't just a symbol. It was a reality. I'm gonna close with this scripture, Hebrews 13, 12 through 14. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore for for here we do not have an enduring city but we are looking for the city that is to come. On the cross, Jesus was cosmically thrown out so that you and I could be brought in. Sin deserves to be cast out, thrown out of the city, but Jesus took it for us. Do you see that? So now when, when you believe on Jesus, you become a citizen of the other city. You're given a new identity. You're free from sin. You're holy because of Jesus. You've been given everything you need, and now you're free. Now you're free to enter back into the earthly city as an ambassador. Because you've been given everything you need, now you're free to give. Do you see that? You understand it? Jesus was thrown out so you and I could be brought in. Jesus was trampled so you and I could be healed. Jesus lost the city that was so that you and I can be cities, uh, citizens of the city that is to come. And until that day, guys, until that day, we find ourselves with dual citizenship, living as a new city within our city to give them light and hope and show them the love of God. So we settle in and we increase and we pray and we seek the peace and prosperity of our city. And so this morning, we're gonna take a few minutes to respond. And I wanna do something different. I think it's good to change things up. And uh, so I'm gonna give you a little instruction. Uh, The band is gonna come up and play. You guys could start coming up right now. I want you to feel free to pray right where you're at or join in and sing along. And you're going to enter up here to take communion whenever you feel led. Um, 
I want you to come and take a piece of the bread and you can dip it and take it back to your seat. And you can pray alone at your seat or you can pray with somebody near you. But we're not going to do discussion groups today. And you can just sit there and you can meditate and confess before you come. But that's, that's what we're going to do. And we're just going to remember together as we pray and sing. We're going to take time to remember the good news of the gospel of, of, of a God who loved us, who sent his son for us. And we're going to ask Christ to change us and make us more like him. Because these things that we just talked about, right, they're him. These things, are, they're just Jesus. He's the, he's the embodiment of these things. And so that's what we're going to celebrate today. If you're not a Christian here this morning, we're so glad you're here. We want you to come back. We want to take you out to eat. We're glad you're checking us out. Please come back. This part, the communion part, it's, it's kind of a family thing. We hold it sacred and special. And so we're going to ask you not to take part of that. But we'd, we'd like for you to consider what it looks like to become a Christian, to be part of this countercultural movement to see your life live for Christ. And, and, and maybe join in and just sing where you are or you can pray. I, I'd, I'd encourage you, pray this prayer if you're not a believer here today. And just ask God, say, hey, I mean, if this is real, help me to believe. If it's not real, I don't want it, but if it's real, help me to believe. And today we set up a prayer team. I asked David and Kirsty to come down and just be available. Here's the deal. We want to pray for you for anything. Whether your toe hurts right now because I, I stepped on it or whether, whether your heart hurts, if you need healing, if you just don't even know what you need, but you just want somebody to pray for you and be that extension, that incarnation of the love of God, please go down and pray with them. would love for that to happen. I'm going to pray over us right now. Father, help us. Thank you that by your spirit we've been led to the son who led us out of darkness and into light and Lord we thank you that Jesus was kicked out of the city so that we could be allowed into your city we need you we need you these things are big they are hard and God, everything we talked about so far today, it's just, it's difficult. Prayer is hard. Settling in and committing is hard. Becoming a missionary is hard. Participating in a culture that is opposed to you is hard. But we're so incredibly grateful for you, Jesus, this morning. Though having equality with God, you did not grasp onto that emptied yourself and you did hard things and you did it because you loved us and I pray you would warm our hearts and wet our eyes and draw us to live like you're calling us to out of that love God not out of a burden not out of guilt not out of shame not out of any other motivation but the love that you've placed in our heart the love that caused you to come and die in our place and so we remember you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.